It's March 30th. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here for Market Call. I'm joined by Liz Young from SoFi. Guy is off today. I know that's very sad, but Liz, you and I are going to have a little fun, aren't we? We have a big show for you today. We're breaking down the first quarter, and it was a wild first quarter, not just in the stock market, but all over the place. In almost every risk market out there, we're going to be talking about earnings season. We're going to be in earnings season soon enough. I know the banks are going to kick them off in mid-April, and we're also going to take your questions throughout the show. So we really appreciate you guys lobbing in those questions. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. Not today, but tomorrow and SoFi because you get your money right all in one app. I have the app. I'm hoping to get it more right going forward here. So thanks to SoFi and, of course, Open Exchange because they've managed virtual meetings that matter. And as Guy Adani would say, this meeting matters. Liz Young, welcome oh. to Market Call. How are you? Uh, by the way, it's March 31st. You said oh. the 30th. You well, you know, I, I just, just so you know, and I appreciate that, um, but I was <laughs> going to say one thing. In my notes on the screen, Amanda, it did say March 24th, so thank you for that. Sure. So I kind of just riffed on the 30th, and I got it wrong here. All right, let's talk about this because, you know, March feels like it was an entire year for markets, right? We got a little bit of everything here, and it's really funny. At one point, here's a headline from Bloomberg, and this is from today. It says, global stocks set for worst quarter in two years. Can you imagine if it was basically turn the clock back, which I just tried to do a little bit here, and we were looking at the quarter ended where we were in the first week of March, that headline would have been like really scary here because at that lows, the S&P was down 15% from its highs. The NASDAQ was down more than 22% from its highs. So we had a lot going on. We had rates were tremendously volatile. We had commodities. It was just everything. And we're going to talk about all of it, but just your quick take as we limp into quarter end here. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We are limping into quarter end. This was a really, really long quarter, especially yeah. after coming off of three years. I, I think it was 30% up, 18% up, and then 28% up. And then we have the most painful quarter in years. So it was tough and it slapped us in the face. No pun intended. Yeah. Ooh, and it's really there. difficult for investors, I think, right now to figure out, OK, was that as bad as it gets? Is it going to get worse in the second quarter? Is it going to get worse later in the year? Not to mention this whole yield curve inversion thing, which, frankly, I'm a little tired of talking about. Sure. But it's important to cover because it does usually signal not great things ahead. I think that the first quarter was the worst that it gets as far as a, a sharp drawdown. I don't think we're going to get another drawdown that's that sharp because the stuff that took us there, think about it. We had a war that broke out. Yeah. We had the first rate hike. We had huge inflation numbers. I don't think we have a trifecta like that again that happens this year. That doesn't mean this year is going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be up in a straight line. I think we're in a period of just heightened volatility. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the S&P, again, at its lows was down 15%. Now it's down a little less than 4% on the year. And the NASDAQ, which was down 22% or so, is only down 8%. So we've had this really sharp rally. Yesterday, there was a tweet by a guy named Ryan Dietrich. He is a strategist over at LPL. And he was talking about the last periods in which we saw a 10% plus move in 10 trading days. And he went 
went back and he mentioned the other times that we saw that. And it was in the spring of 2020. We saw it twice there. And that was in the throes of the pandemic. When you think back to just how little we knew about the situation that we were in and the sort of stimulus, both monetary and fiscal, we we're going to get. And then you have to go back to some other recessionary periods. Now, you can look at that and you can say, OK, well, those were just bear market rallies. But the point I would make about the spring of 2020, it was April um, in May, is that people didn't believe the rallies, right? I certainly didn't believe the rallies back then. And he his point was in the tweet yesterday, don't get too bearish. And then follows it up today with this tweet that 15 of the past 16 years, the S&P 500 has been up in April. So when you see data like that, Liz, what do you do? Uh, I think it's also possible that we have data in a couple months that says in 14 of the last 17 years. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is the narrative is going to change, right? I love how much we focus on the calendar yeah. because it's the way that we measure time. But watch what happens May 1st, right? Then what's what we're going to talk about is sell in May and walk away. And it's yeah. going to turn into this whole new seasonal pattern. I don't think that we can hang our hats on any of this seasonality right now. There is so much other stuff going on. However, I do think that it's possible because we got that first hike behind us and because we don't have a Fed meeting in April, that stocks do pretty well. And that this little rotation that started to happen from value back into growth, some of the stuff that got hit the hardest, we yeah. covered quite a bit since then. I think some of that rotation can hold through April. But then remember, we've got another Fed meeting early May, and that could send it back into volatile territory, back into a sell-off again. Yeah, and, and you know that's really interesting when you think about the, the the kind of lapse between that first rate hike in almost three years, right, going back to 2019. So we had that in mid-March. And then you had that huge period where just April, there's just no Fed meeting. Now, there'll be plenty, plenty of Fed you know, talking heads out there doing their job, jawboning, that sort of thing. But we have to get to May 6 before we have that next rate hike. The CME Fed Watch tool is is predicting, uh, you know, over a 70 percent chance of a 50 basis point hike. So let's keep an eye on that. That'll where be- do you where do you fall on that? I'm curious. So, OK, let's think about it, though. We're going to get CPI in April, yeah. right? That's yeah. probably going to yeah. be hot. We'll get March's CPI in April. It'll probably be hot. Might even be double digits. Some are saying because of gas prices, energy prices. Yeah, we're expecting a 50 basis point hike in May, and then maybe 25 more in June. So total right now, the market is pricing in nine total hikes yeah. in 2022. Yeah. What do you, well, do you think that's well, fair? So, so what I would say is because there wasn't a meeting in April, you know, that's probably why it's kind of skewed towards that kind of 50 basis point hike. We know that they want to hit inflation hard and they want to bring it down. Right. And so um, one thing I would not like to see the Fed do in, in April would be a surprise rate hike. I think that generally throughout my mm-hmm. career, when we've seen the Fed surprise the market, it doesn't usually do the thing that they hope it to do, at least near term as it relates to markets. And that's the, you know, the first, I guess, transmission mechanism, if you will, to use Fed speak of how, um, you know, that those hikes um, or cuts are, are generally viewed. And and again, that could go the other way. But, you know, listen, we're talking about data, we're talking about inputs, and you and I, you know, focus most of our time on the stock market and what should be the guiding force of stock prices. It should be valuations that are based on earnings and cash flows, right? And so Mm -hmm. usually at the end of our market call on Thursdays, we do one for the road and we preview John Butters, our friend from FactSet, his earning insight blog that drops every Friday morning. He gives us a preview of that. But I really want to talk about what he had to say uh, 
uh, in tomorrow's post or what he's going to say in tomorrow's post. But again, there's me kind of moving time around. I, I feel like I'm in like Back to the Future or something here. I don't really know what I'm doing and I may end up in the wrong spot here. But most importantly, let's talk about what Butters is saying here about Q1 2022 earnings expectations here. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that analysts cut earnings estimates for the S&P 500 companies this quarter by less than 1%, okay? The decline is smaller than historical averages, but it's also the first quarterly decline in expected EPS growth since Q2 of 2020. Now, we all know the period that we're in, in Q2 of 2020. Earnings estimates came down really hard. I guess the latter part of this um, earnings insight post is that estimates have gone up for the back half of the year. And you probably remember, you were, you've been a strategist for a long time, not to date you here, but you remember that whole back end loaded thing, back end loaded, that oh, yeah. was like a bullish sort of thing. So that's kind of what they're saying here. Now, the last two years during the pandemic have been back end loaded. Is this going to be the third consecutive year of back end loaded earnings growth? It could be. It very well could be, but for different reasons. So I would actually agree with him. I well, first of all, I think you know revising earnings downward makes sense. There's a lot of pressure on companies right now, and not that they're necessarily in trouble, but a lot of companies issued negative guidance or lowered their guidance for the year. And I think everybody's just kind of waiting to see how inflation shakes out before yeah. they really commit to a ton of new spending and expenses are taking a hit. So when you look at what happens maybe in the second half of the year, Let's assume in a perfect world, and, and perfection is possible here, a soft landing is possible, but if inflation starts to cool off, we don't have wage growth that takes off and really pressures companies, and then we get to a comfortable place where we say, okay, you know what? Yeah, growth is slower, so yeah. lower your expectations, but we didn't contract. And I think to be fair, you know, even if we do have a yield curve inversion and the fear is that we go into a recession or whatever the case may be, that's probably not for at least a year. So that means for the rest of 2022, we're okay. We're probably okay economically. We're probably okay wow. on earnings and we're okay in the market. I, you know, and this is where I'll push back a little bit and I'm putting my kind of trader hat on Liz a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's like the market will discount, you know, like we'll start to kind of discount the potential for, uh, you know, a recession. And, and again, you know, recession yep. doesn't actually have to equal a bear market, you know, if you will. But at, what's different this time about the inversion is that, you know, we're seeing the Fed very committed to, to hiking rates here. And so obviously they were doing that back in 2018, um, 2019. And we did have some sharp sell-offs and it did um, precede a recession in a bear market, but it was a quick one. And so I guess they better get rates higher because the next recession, they're going to need to get them lowered. And the difference that I would just make is that all of these higher input costs, whether they be wages, whether they be energy, that sort of thing, they are going to hit um, earnings, right? And that could affect CapEx, like you just mentioned here. And that could be the thing that lowers like wider economic growth. And so to me, I don't think that stocks discount that here. If we're expected $228 in earnings for the S&P 500, when I see an S&P at about 4,600, that's about 20 times. That's well above the 10-year average. It's down there um, at about 17. So I don't really think it's discounting a whole heck of a lot. Let's look at the S&P 500 really quickly. I'm not going to ask you to put your Carter Braxton Worth hat on here, but it got through that 200-day moving average. It got mm -hmm. back to that 4,600 level. It had a sharp Sharp ass rally, man. I mean, that is what you would call parabolic. Um, it, it, you know, that's mm -hmm. a big word as Guy likes to say. I know he can't <laughs> spell it here. But to me, it looks like as we get through what could have been quarter end marked, 
right? And we get into earnings expectations and we know that banks come first and they don't act particularly well, we could see the S&P back and fill maybe back towards 4,400. That's my take. I'm just curious, and we're going to talk about small caps, the Russell 2000 in a second. Are you focused as much like I am on mega cap uh, stocks right here? Yeah, I am. And, and honestly, I think the bounce was a little much. I think the bounce yeah. in the S&P was a little much. I think the bounce in the NASDAQ was a little much. I do think we needed a bounce, but I think it went up a little quick and, and we yeah. probably do see some of that come back off. Um, I think the real question, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with my note, but the real question is, where are we in the cycle? Yeah. And you look for all these different indicators of where we are in the cycle, and that's what helps you make your decisions about where to put your money, right? So if you think that we are really getting into that late part of the cycle. And I would note though, if we are in the late part of the cycle, that can still last a year, year and a half. So if you get into that later part of the cycle, you do want things like utilities, you want things like staples, you want things like healthcare, right? And I would stay larger cap if you think that that's where we are. Small caps and some of the more uh, juicy stuff, so semiconductors, things like that, can still do well if we're mid-cycle. Yeah. Now, you could argue that there's a lot of indicators here telling us that we're later in the cycle. Was this a bear market bounce? Maybe. I mean, it's one of those things. I, I laugh about it when people call it a bear market bounce. Or was it a bull market correction, right? Was it something where it's partly cloudy or mostly sunny? I don't know. But <laughs> You could see for the rest of the year, we stay in a range. I think it's possible, though, with this bounce, if we don't give it all back up, I think it's still possible we end in positive territory. Yeah, well, there you go, Liz Young. All right, well, let's look at the NASDAQ, the aforementioned NASDAQ that did have that bounce. And on a relative basis, it showed, you know, very poor relative strength to the S&P 500. We know that the major names, you know, in the S&P, those top six names make up about 25% of the weight of the S&P 500, but they make up about 50% of the NDX, the NASDAQ 100. And look at this chart here, and you see this kind of resistance level where the index is kind of stuck in a little bit. It's kind of below now its 200-day moving average that it was above for the first time since early February for just uh, maybe 24 hours or so. And that's one where, again, you know, we know that there's dozens and dozens of stocks that are still down 50, 60% from their highs that are in that index, but it's a half a dozen stocks that are keeping that thing levitating. And it is truly astounding. When I look at Apple and the volatility that we saw in Q1, it is unchanged on the year Alphabet, Google is down 3% of the year. Amazon is down 1% on the year. So you can do the math there. You can figure out how we get to, um, you know, how we would get back unchanged if those stocks were to really get going, but, or if they were to sell off, you know, back towards those recent lows, then you have an NDX retesting those February lows. One point here though, Liz, I'll just say, is that the recession playbook is likely to go back to those recurring revenue models, those huge balance sheets, those huge moats. They're basically monopolies, those great managements when you think about them. And so to me, that's one reason why I said this in front of an audience yesterday of investment advisors. I said, you know, everybody wants to get really complicated when they think about markets and they think about all these risk assets. And I'm going to make it really simple. The next time we have a sell-off and you want to deploy capital, it's just spoos, Qs, and twos. And I'll tell you why, okay? <laughs> so the S&P 500, the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, and the two-year treasuries. Because I don't think yields are ever going up meaningfully higher from where they are right now. So I'd be buying treasuries if I'm looking to diversify away from equities. The QQQ is the only game in town, okay? If you're going to be exposed to equities, you're going to get those six or seven massive names, and then you're going to get the dozens of stocks that act like dog shit that are down 50, 60, 70%. And if they ever come back, 
back, you're going to have outperformance in the QQQ relative to the S&P 500, but you also want to be exposed to the S&P 500. So spoos, Qs, and twos. Got it. God, I thought this was a family show. You've sworn twice. Oh, uh, well, you know, I'm just, I will tell you this. I'm all fired up. And I know your family back <laughs> home in Wisconsin are saying, why are you hanging out with all those New Yorkers? They got They're not mouse. watching right now. They got, <laughs> mouse, they got mouse on them. All right. Yesterday on Market Call, I'd love to get your take here. Carter Braxton Worth, he gave us a relative performance chart of the Russell 2000. This is right in your wheelhouse of value versus growth. And he says that he thinks we're going to have a switch back to small cap growth versus value. Quick take if you have a view on that, okay, because it might kind of feed into how you view the economy and how we come back the back half of the year. But also just let's look at the Russell 2000. And that thing had been in that very long consolidation for the better part of last year. It broke out, then it broke down, and it's showing very poor relative strength in my mind to large cap stocks. Your take on small caps. Yeah, well, asking me like if I have a take on small caps is asking if the Pope is Catholic. Um, yes, I've been wrong on small caps and broad indexes, right? So the Russell 2000, the broad index, I've been wrong on. But the Russell 2000 value did really well earlier this year and if compared to the growth. However, here's the thing. And I wanted to talk about this later anyway, but I guess I'll do it right now. If you're an investor who still has an appetite for growth and you want some of that high octane growth trade, but you're a little trepidatious about getting back into tech given the rate environment, biotech is the right play. And biotech is still trading at very attractive multiples. Most of the Russell 2000 growth is gonna be made up of healthcare because there's a lot of biotech names in that. So saying that the Russell 2000 growth is gonna do better than the value index is basically saying that biotech is gonna do better than some of the smaller financials or smaller industrials. And I would absolutely agree with that, especially at this point in the cycle and given the rate environment. So I'm on board with Carter's call. All right, fair enough. Uh, I appreciate that. And you know what I would have said that would have kind of mapped closer to the way I speak here in New York City, but the way that maybe your people back home in Wisconsin say, you said is the Pope Catholic. I might have said, does the bear, you know what, in the woods? I don't know. I'm sorry. Let's keep it <laughs> here. Um, but all right, let's take a couple of viewer questions. Then we're going to litter them throughout this conversation here. So this is from Barney. I, Barney, I cannot pronounce your last name. I'm not even going to try here, but thank you for the question. Are we headed for a stagflation scenario down the road, longer term question mark, or just a run of the mill temporary slash shallow recession? Liz, get in the business of predicting recessions and you will be yeah. the happiest market strategist out there oh, that I man. know. Talk yeah, to people me. are going to love it. Yeah, let's Twitter was let's... Twitter was hot today, by the way. Yeah, and Barney, yeah. Barney is a frequent participator okay. in the Twitter machine. Can you um, pronounce his last name? Ob absolutely not. Abschnatsowitz. I think that's it. I think it's Abschnatsowitz. And I'm Ob surprised. And we could shorten that it thing sounds, up. It, it Barney, sounds very Wisconsin. Call us actually. and we'll figure out some some way to kind of make that a bit more marketable. But in the meantime, <laughs> give us, uh, Liz, give us, give me your take on stagflation and what sort of recession are we in for here? I am hopeful. And look, I look at recessions as a very natural, very healthy part of the business cycle. So are we going to have one again? Yes. I don't know when. I don't think we should get in the game of trying to call the exact month when it's going to happen, because frankly, we don't know that it happened until about a month after it's over. So yes, we're going to have one again. I am hopeful that it is quick, maybe a little painful, but quick and shallow. And then it takes care of inflation, which would answer the question of, will we have a longer term stagflation scenario? I think the answer to that is no. 
I think we're already in stagflation. We're already in a period where growth is slowing. Inflation is obviously off the charts. Anything that you look at in real terms, so subtracting inflation out, is negative. So we're already there. If inflation gets taken care of with a brief, shallow recession, then we come out of it and hopefully we can grow organically again. That whole time frame, though, that could be a 24-month scenario. Yeah, I guess the one thing that I would say is that, you know, when you see things and we had a, a guy named Gavin Baker, who was at Fidelity for 20 years, he was a growth manager in both uh, crossover and public and privates on on the tape with Guy Adami and me last week, you guys should all listen to that because he made a couple really great points. He's like as an investor, and he's at, um, he runs a firm called Atreides Management right now. When you see things that you have never seen before, you know, like the inflation readings and some of the wage, um, you know, like spirals that we're sort of seeing or wage hike. You know, you, you got to pay attention. You got to think about it. You don't have to say things like it's different this time, but you got to really pay attention and you got to stress test your models. You got to think about things um, a little bit differently. And I think that's really important. Brevin Howard, which is a very, very prominent um, asset management firm headquartered in London. There was a, a piece going around in, um, you know, it's been passed around to me. I saw it all over Twitter. I saw it all over Bloomberg. Um, you know, they're basically saying there's a risk to a 1970s style inflation shock. Um, and really it has to do with, I mean, Think about this, okay? If the Fed's mandate is stable prices and you know um, stable employment, uh, low unemployment, if you will, right? Well, what happens if we do see growth slow and we start to see those unemployment numbers tick up a little bit? But there's no incentive, especially if you go back to some of the themes pre-pandemic, right? Automation, everything like that, right? We're seeing deglobalization, and I think that's one of the things that's causing this kind of wage spike that we're seeing here in the U.S. But talk to people who look around the world; they'll tell you it's not happening in other places around the world. It's happening right here. So, um, you know, this is something I think you want to keep an eye on. I know you said you're sick of talking about the inverted yield curve. The point is that over the last two times that we've seen an inverted yield curve, go back to 2019, go back to 2006, it did precede recessions and bear markets. Um, your guess is as good as mine. I guess the one thing I'd stay focused on is if we are to see something that we've all never seen before, if CPI, PPI, some of these other readings do not come in, we're likely to see something in the markets and the economy that we have not seen in a very long time also. Yes, but keep in mind that inversion in 2019 had no idea that there was a pandemic coming. So that, right. that inversion did not predict the following recession, in my opinion. The 1970s style inflation shock, yeah, I mean, I think I think we already are nearing that. The difference was the Fed was trying to avoid going into recession. They were trying to raise rates, bring inflation down, and avoid recession. I don't know that they're going to try that hard to avoid it this time. Yeah. I think that they might believe that a little recession will fix the problem, and that would be okay, which is why now the narrative has shifted again, and they're going to go after it with a heavier hammer in the beginning. Yeah. And again, I don't think the word recession should put fear in investors' minds. Yeah. You know, when you think about the way cycles are working and the Fed having the back of the of the economy and obviously the markets too. So to me, you know, we've just orchestrated after that pandemic, like you say, yeah, that yield curve inversion um, predicted it. It didn't know the reasons why, but it happened. But the Fed and what they did, it made it one of the shortest sort of recessionary periods, one of the shortest bear markets that we've seen in a very long time. Really quickly, because a large input here is crude oil price 
prices the Biden administration in a midterm election year are talking about releasing um, the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, to kind of help kind of fight these inflationary forces as it relates to um, oil. I think it's fine. I think any administration, Republican or Democrat, would be doing the same thing, even if it wasn't an election year, to be very honest with you. And, um, wow. you know, inflation is going to be that 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 one thing, the top thing that people are going to be voting for um, are voting on and whoever's in power, you know, good luck to you there. Um, and, and when you go into those elections, but look at that move in crude oil and you see that uptrend that we've drawn from the December lows here. Um, you know, again, could this thing come back towards, you know, 90 bucks or so? Um, yeah, really easily. And that would be just above that prior high that we had in October and November. And I don't think really too much changes. I don't think, I mean, yeah, gas at the pump comes down. I don't think it changes the Fed's view about what they have to do or think they have to do as far as rate hikes right now. I'm just curious on crude here. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It doesn't change what the Fed has to do. I actually posted something about this today. I just said, you know, here's where the reserves are. Here's where they would be if we carried out this plan. Uh, and I said, this is why we have reserves. What I meant was we have reserves for an emergency situation. I'm considering a war, an emergency situation. And some of the consumers on the lower end of the income spectrum that are getting really pinched by this. I was in Wisconsin last weekend. I talked to a lot of my family members, a lot of friends at a wedding. People are getting pinched by it. People are making different decisions because yeah. of how much it costs to fill up their tank. However, Twitter got hot at me about that post <laughs> and decided that it was a big political discussion. And you know what? I'm not saying Whoa. it's not a political discussion. I got to check that out. I got to check, check it out. out. Yeah. And, you know, that it was a political move. I'm not saying that it's entirely free from politics. Yeah. But I do think that there's there's different motivations behind it, and some of which is trying to protect the consumer on the lower income spectrum. All right. I got you, sister. All right. Let's take another question. This is from John C. Small. What sectors do you think will outperform? Which sectors would you avoid? We can be really quick on this one. He's asking more specifically, what are your thoughts on XOP, XLF, and XLK? So XOP is obviously energy. XLF is banks. XLK is large cap tech. Thoughts on these groups really quickly. Yeah. I mean, if look again, to, back to the cycle question, right? Where are we in the cycle? You want to be in healthcare here, actually. I wouldn't go all defensive. I wouldn't go utility staples in healthcare and call it a day. But yeah. I think healthcare is a good hold. And I mentioned biotech already. I think large cap healthcare is a good hold. Uh, I still like financials for the year. Energy is something that I, I happen to think we peaked already. I think that that's behind us. If you happen to sell during that peak, I don't know that I'd be legging back in until it gets down lower than this. Uh, I would wait on the energy thing. Large caps, though, Yes, I do think that we're moving to later in the cycle and large cap is the place to be. Yeah, and I agree with you on energy. I mean, I really think we're going to see some mean reversionary action over the next few months and a lot of these things. Um, so, all right, that's great. All right, let's get to your piece. Where can people find your weekly? It drops on Thursdays on SoFi's blog. You can obviously follow Liz at Liz Young Strat, and she tweets it out. I'm going to tweet it out. I haven't read it yet, so I'm just reading your bullets. I'm waiting for you to read it to me. Talk to me about <laughs> No Place Like Home, Liz. This was your piece that dropped on SoFi's blog this morning. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I could outdo my soap opera thing. And I don't think I did outdo it, but this that one was, was pretty good, good was too. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz one is is also pretty good. And I think I've mentioned this before. I played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz in eighth grade. <laughs> Obviously. So I have a special place in my heart for yeah. this movie. But this is about the housing market. There's been so much conversation about housing, the fact that mortgage rates have spiked in the last few months. 
has it affected housing? Is it going to start affecting housing? So here's, here's a couple of things. The reason we look at housing as an indicator is because it's usually a pretty clear cyclicality signal. So housing does really well when we're in expansionary times and it turns over when we go into contraction, but it also recovers really, really quickly. If you go into a recession, the Fed has to cut rates, then suddenly it comes back because people are willing to take out more mortgages. So there have been indicators in the housing market that are showing some rollover, some slowdown. But it's important to keep in mind that we are still way above historical norms and mortgage rates are still way below historical norms. So I think that housing strength can go on for a little while here, at least through the first half. But we are going to start seeing a rollover, obviously, in mortgage activity as rates rise. You probably see uh, some of the inventory come back online as we hit a seasonality period in spring. Usually people are selling more houses. I don't think, though, that we can discount the fact that there are a lot of cash buyers out there, especially in places like New York City. Dan, I know you know this. Yeah. Mortgage rates don't affect a cash buyer. They don't care. Yeah. And if you have something to sell, you're going to get a higher price for it now than you would have three years ago. And then you might in a year from now. So people are still eager to sell too. And if they're turning a big profit on that, I think the demand for housing stays for a while. But you mentioned this before, the market obviously is a discounting mechanism. I think we all know that. You look at some things like home builders, some of the housing stocks in the market have really mm -hmm. fallen out of bed. And I think that that's probably a predictor that the second half of the year is not going to be as strong in the housing market. Yeah, no, and that's great. And and that's a, a really tight note. I don't get the last bullet, a horse of a different color. I mean, at least the title, <laughs> but maybe, maybe, maybe I fell asleep in the third hour of, uh, of oh, that movie here a little such bit. Such a good but movie. No, I know. I, I haven't seen it since I was a kid here, but let's talk about some of these related names here. Um, look at this home builders ETF and, you know, you talk, I mean, listen, it's already discounting everything that yeah. you've just talked about as rates started going higher. I think investors started saying, okay, we've had this amazing boom. We've had all this weirdness around the pandemic and all these different migrations and people upgrading their homes and that sort of thing. I think it's really important. I think the, the XXB is in a really interesting technical spot right here, not acting particularly well, looking very weak. Looks like it's going to make lower lows, but it's really important to consider what is in this ETF. And you and I talk about this a lot when we talk about ETFs, knowing what's in them a little bit. If you think this is just a pure play on home builders, it is not. Look at some of those largest holdings a lot of suppliers and a lot of things that you might buy in a um, department store, a big box store that would go in your home. So it really is um, a broader swath as it relates to um, retailing. And I want to look at one of these names because I don't know if you caught this list. Look at this RH, Restoration Hardware. Okay, this is mm -hmm. a high-end, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, retailer of, of home goods. And look at some of the comments that the CEO made on this call. And this got a lot of play this week. I've never, I've never been in my 22 years, have I ever been more excited but I've also never been more uncertain. I mean, it's probably one of the most difficult guides since 2008 and 2009 because we're right in the middle of the disruption from Ukraine and Russia. Well, that to me seems kind of odd that that's something you're going to call the, the Ukraine mulligan here if you're a U.S. domestic retailer of stuff that goes in homes. And here's the last one. I mean, I think, I don't think anybody really understands what's coming from an inflation point of view because either businesses are going to make a lot less money or they're going to raise their prices. I think it's going to outrun the consumer. So this 
really is important. This ties into that conversation we had with John Butters and his expectations for earnings in Q1 and Q2 and where people are expected in the back half of the year. I don't think we're going to do $228 in S&P earnings this year. I just don't. I think it's going to be much lower. That means the multiple is going to be higher when those cuts come, which is why I think the market goes lower. When you see a CEO reeling like this, Liz, what does it tell you? Well, one thing I'll tell you, I was actually at the RH store. It's right around the corner from our office. Uh, as everybody should know that if you go to that rooftop deck, they only serve beer and wine. They do not serve hard alcohol. Oh, so just well, there you go. No fair comos. warning. No comos. Fair warning. Get comos no comos. Yeah. No comos. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like he's hedging, right? It's He's yeah. hedging for the rest of the year to be maybe not as good as he hopes. And I think that's probably fair. However, if you've still got regional differences, if you got the cash buyer in New York, that's a wealthy buyer. That buyer is shopping at Restoration Hardware. So I don't know that it's going to be that bad. Uh, I tend to think that earnings will hold in there this year. I think we probably get 8 to 10% growth in earnings. Yeah. And that's about an average year. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that's probably pretty natural for this point in the cycle. I will say though, people don't usually want to hear a CEO be so uncertain. You want to hear a CEO be certain about their guidance, even if they're admitting that, you know what, we're going to roll it back a little bit just to be safe, just to be conservative. I'd yeah. rather hear that from a CEO than somebody who's really not sure what the future holds. Yeah, hundred percent. But here's the thing, you know, investors have already made up their mind. They've sold the stock down 50% um, prior to that earnings call, you know, and so you see this sort of weakness. I, I drew some lines on that um, chart, on that RH chart. It really feels like it should go back to that that, um, you know, that pre-pandemic high. Um, and then really it was a breakout level a few months later when people got hip to what was going on. All right, we got to talk about chip stocks, semiconductor stocks, you know, once thought to be very cyclical, but now um, we're seeing all types of chips going in, all types of products here. Yesterday, Carter, Guy, and I talked a little bit about the space. Micron had reported a good quarter and a good guide, and the stock was up 5% in the aftermarket. This is the night that they reported, but it gave it all back. And, it, and, and really now it's lower than the point in which when they report and that's not great price action we talked about nvidia last week at their um they had an analyst meeting or two weeks ago and really confirmed a lot of the stuff that micron said but here's the moment this is what's important to me taiwan semiconductor which is one of the largest manufacturers of semiconductors it is the largest manufacturer some of the things that they're saying about demand for pcs and, and smartphones not great here starting to slow here so taiwan semi has really been um in the weeds here over the last few months not trading particularly well but here's the last point I'll just make. AMD. This is one that we featured on Market Call last week. I gave a way to play it to the upside if you thought it was breaking out of that downtrend, you know, and maybe a move back towards 150, defining your risk with a call spread here. But man, oh man, Barclays downgrades today saying PC and gaming markets are due for a correction. This stock is down 8% as we speak. I'm not going to ask you specifically about AMD here, but what do you think about semis that have had a massive rally, 20% off of those lows from February? Um, if they were to give it back, what would that tell you about the global economy, or at least tech? Yeah, I think that the run-up in semis was also overdone. I'm not a big semis bull here. I think yeah. given the higher volatility environment and given where semis fall in the kind of beta spectrum, that's not the play that I would be making in tech. I would be making a big cap tech play, and I would look at things like cloud computing that yeah. are not dependent on a supply chain. 
Yeah, and you want recurring revenues. I know that. You're a recurring mm-hmm. revenue gal, as you say. Sticky. Small caps. Sticky, sticky yeah. revenues. No, I got that. And the last thing I'll just say about this AMD is that, you know, when it's breaking out there and people are asking me, how do you play this thing? I said, you define your risk. You know, you basically would do a call spread defining your risk to a move maybe back towards that 150 level. 155, I think, is what we kind of targeted. 120, 155 call spread. Looking at a couple months. And listen, you know, I like to use mental stops when I'm making directional or expressing directional views using options because the longer uh, a play takes to, to kind of earn out or play out, those options are just decaying. So use a 50% mental stop. That's what I like to do and cut your losses. You do not want to see long premium trades go to zero because you're being stubborn. All right, last one. This is a question that I wanted to quickly answer, Liz, before we get out of here. Um, David Gonst. Uh, ask. May Gansh. I ask you a question? Gansh. Gansh. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm just pronouncing it uh, wrong. Sorry, David. <laughs> um, may I ask you a question, please? Cash uh, tag KTTA. I think that's a stock market cap, about half of the cash they have on the balance. What's up with that? Well, here's the one thing I say. I read this wrong at first. I thought you were saying that the cash is half of the market cap. I don't know the stock. I'm not going to opine on it, but I think it's really important to go back 20 years. There was a lot of companies that had the opportunity to raise cash that were in high growth businesses that weren't materializing into earnings and cash flow, that sort of thing. But that cash in the balance sheet, once they crashed, was really, um, you know, it was basically put a floor and where that stock could go. And if they have good managements and they can ride out and they can cut costs, they can ride out bad times, that cash will be a lifeline. So I think it's important. You're going to start seeing screens. If we were to go back down, if we were to stay in a choppy market well below those recent highs, you're going to see high growth or once high growth companies meant to be innovative, if they have cash and not a lot of debt and their managements are working smartly, they're going to make it through these periods. But ones that are highly levered without a lot of cash and their business is come down pretty hard watch out below so david thanks for the question all right liz young we went over time here we went late we didn't even have guy dami i really appreciate you being patient with it that's going to do it for market call thanks once again to our sponsors fact set oh wait yeah what do you got there i told you i had a prop you're number one oh that's a finger it's but i brought it because sofi made the time 100 most influential companies list for 2022 so Listen, I, I know use, I get to use my foam finger. I love the foam finger. It is March Madness. Um, Wisconsin didn't make it particularly far. I think I had them go into a couple rounds. They got knocked out kind of early there. Um, but congrats to SoFi on that. So SoFi has obviously been a great um, partner of ours on this market call program that we do on Thursdays. Obviously, FactSet um, has also, and of course, Open Exchange because they power this whole operation here. So thank you to them. So for more great content from Liz Young, follow her on Twitter at Liz Young Strat. Sign up for SoFi's daily newsletter at SoFi.com backslash or slash, however you want to call it, daily to read Liz's articles every Thursday. I'm going to read it. You read a little bit to me. I'm going to read it later. We're going to tweet it out. Thank you very li- uh, thank you very much, Liz, for joining us. So be sure to tune in again for Market Call on Monday at 1 p.m. Guy Dami will be back. Liz, thank you. Have a great weekend. 